Chapter Four, Parts One and Two of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume One, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter Four. The Union of Attica, and the Foundation of the Athenian Democracy. Section 1. The Union of Attica. When recorded history begins, the story of Athens is the story of Attica. The inhabitants of Attica are Athenians. But Attica, like its neighbour Boeotia and other countries of Greece, was once occupied by a number of independent states. Some of these little kingdoms are vaguely remembered in legends, which tell of the giant Pallas who ruled at Pellini, under the north-eastern slopes of Hymettus, of the dreaded Cephalus, lord of the southern region of Thoricus, or of Porphyrion of mighty stature, whose domain was at Athmonon, under Mount Pentelicus. The hill of Munichia was, in the distant past, an island, and was crowned by a stronghold. The name, Piraeus, has been supposed to preserve the memory of days when the lords of Munichia looked across to the mainland and spoke of the opposite shore. At a later stage we find neighbouring villages uniting themselves together by political or religious bonds. Thus in the north, beyond Pentelicus, Marathon, and Oini, and two other towns formed a tetrapolis. Again Piraeus, adjacent Phaleron, and two other places joined in the common worship of the god Heracles, and were called the Four Villages. Of all the lordships between Mount Cithaeron and Cape Sunium, the two most important were those of Eleusis and Athens, severed from one another by the hill-chain of Aegileus. It was upon Athens, the stronghold in the midst of the Cephissian plain, five miles from the sea, that destiny devolved the task of working out the unity of Attica. This Cephissian plain, on the south side open to the Saronic Gulf, is enclosed by hills, on the west by Aegileus, on the north-west by Parnes, on the east by Hymettus while the gap in the northeast between Parnes and Hymettus is filled by the gable-shaped mass of Pentelicus. The river Cephissus flows not far from Athens to the westward, but the Acropolis was girt by two smaller streams, the Elysus and the Eridanus. We have seen that it had been occupied as an abode of men in the third millennium, and that in the Bronze Age it was one of the strong places of Greece. There still remain pieces of the wall of grey-blue limestone, with which the Pelasgian lords of the castle secured the edge of their precipitous hill. The old wall was called the Pelagicon, but in later times this name was specially applied to the ground on the northwestern slope. The Acropolis is joined to the Areopagus by a high saddle, which forms its natural approach, and on this side walls were so constructed that the main western entrance to the citadel lay through nine successive gates. 
At the northwestern corner a covered staircase led down to the well of Clepsydra, which supplied the fortress with water, and on the north side there were two narrow postern descents into the plain, much steeper than that at Tiryns. We may take it that all these constructions were the work of the Pelasgians, and were inherited by their Greek successors. The first Greeks who won the Pelasgic Acropolis were probably the Cecropes, and, though their name was forgotten as the name of an independent people, it survived in another form. For the later Athenians were always ready to describe themselves as the sons of Cecrops. This Cecrops was numbered among the imaginary prehistoric kings of Athens. He was nothing more than the fabulous ancestor of the Cecropes. But the time came when other Greek dwellers in Attica won the upper hand over the Cecropes, and brought with them the worship of Athena. It was a momentous day in the history of the land, when the goddess, whose cult was already established in many other Attic places, took possession of the hill which was to be pre-eminently, and for all time, associated with her name. The Acropolis became Athenae. The folks, whether Cecropes or Pelasgians, who dwelled in the villages around it, on the banks of the Elysus and the Eridanus, became Athenians. The god whom the Cecropes worshipped on the hill, Poseidon Erechtheus, was forced to give way to the goddess. Legend told that Athena and Poseidon had disputed the possession of the Acropolis, and that each had set a token there, the goddess her sacred olive tree, the god a salt spring. The dethroned deity was not banished. There was a conciliation, characteristic of the Greek temper, between the old and the new. Erechtheus, in the shape of a snake, is permitted still to live on the hill of Athena, and the oldest temple that was built for the goddess harboured also the god. In later times, Athenian history transformed Erechtheus into a hero, and regarded him, like Cecrops, as one of the early kings. There was another god who was closely associated in Attic legend with Athena, and Athens was distinguished by the high honour in which she held him. This was Hephaestus, the divine smith, the master and helper of handicraftsmen, the cunning giver of wealth. But we cannot say how far back his worship in Attica goes, or when his special feasts were instituted. It is probable that his honour grew along with the prosperity of the craftsman. An Athenian poet calls his countrymen sons of Hephaestus, and, according to one myth, it was from his seed that all the earth-born inhabitants of Attica were sprung. At the feast of Apatoria in the last days of autumn, when children were admitted into the fratries by a solemn ceremony, the fathers used to light torches at the hearth, and sing a hymn to the Lord of Fire. The next great step in Attic history was the union of the land. We cannot be certain at what time this union took place. It recedes beyond the beginnings of recorded history, and we can only dimly discern how it was brought about. 
When the lords of the Acropolis had subdued their own Cephissian plain, from Mount Parnes to the hill of Munichia, from the slopes of Hymettus to Agales, they were tempted to extend their power eastward into the Midlands, beyond Mount Hymettus, and subdue the southern acte, or wedge of land, which ends in the lofty cape of Sunium. The completion of this conquest was possibly the first great achievement of Athens, and the second was probably the subjugation of the northeastern plain of Marathon and the Tetrapolis. Thus the first stage in the union of Attica is the reduction of the small independent sovereignties throughout all the land, except the Eleusinian plain in the west, under the loose overlordship of Athens. In the course of time the feeling of unity in Attica became so strong that all the smaller lordships, which formed part of the large state, but still retained their separate political organizations, could be induced to surrender their home governments, and merge themselves in a single community, with a government centralized in the city of the Cephissian plain. The man of Thoricus, or Aphidnae, or Icaria, now became a citizen of Athens and his political rights must be exercised there. The memory of this Sinoicism was preserved in historical times by an annual feast, and it was fitting that it should be so remembered, for it determined the whole history of Athens. From this time forward she is no longer merely the supreme city of Attica, she is neither the head of a league of partly independent states, nor yet a despotic mistress of subject communities. She is not what Thebes is to become in Boeotia, or what Sparta is in Laconia. If she had been, and she might well have been, either of these things, her history would have been gravely altered. She is the central city of a united state and to the people of every village in Attica belong the same political rights as to the people of Athens herself. The man of Marathon, or the man of Thoricus, is no longer an Attic, he is an Athenian. It is generally supposed that the Sinoicism was the work of one of the kings. It was undoubtedly the work of one man, but it is possible that it belongs to the period immediately succeeding the abolition of royal power. In after-times the Athenians thought that the hero Theseus, whom they had enrolled in the list of their early kings, was the author of the union of their country. But at the period when that union was brought about, Theseus was not a national hero. He was a local god, worshipped in the Marathonian district, and in the east coastlands of Attica. He had not yet won the importance which he was to possess hereafter in Athenian myth and history. Section 2. Foundation of the Athenian Commonwealth The early history of the Athenian constitution resembles that of most other Greek states, in the general fact that a royalty, subjected to various restrictions, passes into an aristocracy but the details of the transition are peculiar, and the beginning of the Republic seems to have been exceptionally early. The traditional names of the Attic kings, who came after the hero Theseus, are certainly in some cases, and it may be in most cases, fictitious, 
the most famous of them being the Niliid Codrus, who was said to have sacrificed himself to save his country on the occasion of an attack of invaders from the Peloponnesus. The Athenians said that they had abolished royalty on the death of Codrus because he was too good to have a successor, a curious reversal of the usual causes of such a revolution. But this story is a late invention. The first limitation of the royal power effected by the aristocracy was the institution of a polemarch, or military commander. The supreme command of the army, which had belonged to the king, was transferred to him, and he was elected from and by the nobles. The next step seems to have been the overthrow of the royal house by the powerful family of the Medontids. The Medontids did not themselves assume the royal title, nor did they abolish it. They instituted the office of Archon, or Regent, and this office usurped the most important functions of the king. Acastus, the Medontid, was the first regent. We know that he was an historical person. The archons of later days always swore that they would be true to their oath, even as Acastus. He held the post for life, and his successors after him, and thus the Medontids resembled kings, though they did not bear the kingly name. But they fell short of royalty in other way, too, for each regent was elected by the community. The community was only bound to elect a member of the Medontid family. The next step in weakening the power of this kingly magistrate was the change of the regency from a life office to an office of ten years. This reform is said to have been effected about the middle of the eighth century. It is uncertain at what time the Medontids were deprived of their prerogative, and the regency was thrown open to all the nobles. With the next step we reach firmer ground. The regency became a yearly office, and from this time onward an official list of the archons seems to have been preserved. But, meanwhile, there were still kings at Athens. The Medontids had robbed the kings of their royal power, but they had not done away with the kings. There was to be a king at Athens till the latest days of the Athenian democracy. It seems probable that, as some historical analogies might suggest, the Medontids allowed the shadow of royalty to remain in the possession of the old royal house, so that for some time there would have been life-kings existing by the side of the life-regents. It is not likely that from the very first the kingship was degraded to a yearly office filled by election. This, however, was what it ultimately became. The whole course of the constitutional development is uncertain, for it rests upon traditions of which it is extremely hard to judge the value. But, whatever the details of the growth may have been, two important facts are to be grasped. One is that the fall of royalty, which does not imply the abolition of the royal name, happened in Athens at an earlier period than in Greece generally. The other is that the Medontids were not kings but archons, the chiefs of an aristocracy. The great work of the Medontids was the foundation of the Athenian commonwealth, and perhaps one of their houses to be remembered for another achievement, no less great, which has already been described, the Union of Attica. That union need not be older than the ninth century, 
and it is possible that the same republican movement which led to the downfall of the old royal house of the Acropolis led to the Sinoichism of Attica. The political union of a country demands a system of organization, and the statesmen who united Attica sought their method of organization from one of those cities of Ionia which Athens came to look upon as her own daughters. All the inhabitants were distributed into four tribes, which were borrowed from Miletus. The curious names of these tribes, Geliontes, Argades, Aegicores, and Hoplates, seem to have been derived from the worship of special deities, for instance, Geliontes from Zeus Gelion, but the original meanings of the names has entirely passed away, and the tribes were affiliated to Apollo Patros, the paternal Apollo from whom all Athenians claimed descent. The brotherhoods seem to have been reorganized and arranged under the tribes, three to each tribe, so that there were twelve brotherhoods in the Attic state. At the head of each tribe was a tribe king. We can see the clan organization at Athens better than elsewhere. The families of each clan derived themselves from a common ancestor, and most of the clan names are patronymics. The worship of this ancestor was the chief end of the society. All the clans alike worshipped Zeus Hecaios and Apollo Patrus. Many of them had a special connection with other public cults. Each had a regular administration and officers, at the head of which was an archon. To these clans only members of the noble families belonged, but the other classes, the peasants and the craftsmen, formed similar organizations founded on the worship not of a common ancestor, for they could point to none, but some deity whom they chose. The members of these were called Orgeones. This innovation heralds the advance of the lower classes to political importance. The brotherhoods, composed of families whose lands adjoined, united their members in the cult of Zeus Fratrios and Athena Fratria. In early times only clansmen belonged to the brotherhoods, but here again a change takes place in the seventh century, and Orgiones are admitted. The organization was then used for the purposes of census. Every child whose parents were citizens must be admitted into a brotherhood, and, if this right is neglected, he is regarded as illegitimate. It should be observed that illegitimacy at Athens did not deprive a man of political rights, but he could not lay claim by right of birth to his father's inheritance. At a much later time the constitutional historians of Athens made out that the clans were artificial subdivisions of the brotherhoods. They said that each tribe was divided into three brotherhoods, each brotherhood into thirty clans, and it was even added that each clan comprised thirty men. This artificial scheme is true, so far as the relation of the tribe to the brotherhood is concerned, but it is not true in regard to the clan, and is refuted by the circumstance that the tribes consisted of others than clansmen. End of chapter 4, sections 1 and 2